0: I'm delighted to be back again today with Lucas Vanoss, and we are doing part three of our series on Wolfgang Smith. I wanted to put in the title "The Legacy of Wolfgang Smith," but I was afraid people might think, "Oh, has something happened to Wolfgang?" Yeah, that's no, fine. But but um, <laughs> I do feel like what we're doing on YouTube is kind of storing up um, things for people who come to at least be interested in looking at his work because. As I was telling you before we came online today, every time I pick up one of his books, I can look at just one page. And I'm going to find so much in that one page that it would, it would fill a whole episode. And he's written many, many books. And his ideas are very concise. So when he says something, sometimes one idea, it'll take a whole chapter to unpack that. But um, but what he's saying is just very meaningful, and purposeful for our world today. So Lucas, you've been doing a lot of research on Wolfgang, and I want to give you an opportunity to share that with us.
1: Oh, thank you, Karen, for the introduction. Um, I think part one and two were a lot of fun. We focused on the quantum enigma last time, and the first one was more of the basic ideas. So it really does help to watch those, I think. And this will be our final talk. Looking forward to it um the main thing we're going to be discussing is this book science and myth but i think we'll go on a lot of tangents and um we'll see we'll see where it heads us but the basic idea you hear it in the title science and myth is that science has become our myth and what do i mean by saying that is that basically we all have a frame through which we view the world Um, and i think this is the first time ever that we are trying to as a society think that we are objective in the world like we are disconnected from the world and we can observe it and we spoke a lot about this in the second episode this idea of observer and observed and wolfgang brilliantly i think disproves this with examples from the quantum enigma from quantum theory where you show that the observer has such a clear influence on on the outcomes of the experiment and so Science is not objective and science, according to Wolfgang Smith has become our myth and it's kind of like an anti-myth because what it basically does is it banishes out all other myths so it doesn't leave any room for the stories through which we view the world. It claims full authority and he also calls it a false myth because well many reasons really but for starters, science is supposed to be subject to change. And as Thomas Kuhn has pointed out like brilliantly, I think it's a simple idea, but it's a brilliant idea. The one of paradigms that we we move through paradigms and paradigms are replaced when you have enough anomalies within the scientific paradigm that don't fit the framework anymore. And this happens all the time. Like every paradigm that we've gone through has been replaced and thus every myth let's say Every framework is replaced by the other, but we still seem to think every time that this is the one. so we absolutize the relative to quote uh Karen from a couple of episodes back.
0: that's not me that was that was me quoting somebody else
1: <laughs> I think honestly even the guy we would have quoted he would have quoted someone else as well and it goes back <laughs> and then we realize we don't even own any of the quotes we we speak into existence I think but basically that that's what happened I think it's that A lot of what what we've done is we've absolutized science. uh, We've made it our authority. uh, And it's become more and more so the case. And what it's also done, I think, is we have mistaken scientists to be the sages of our age. So we've equated wisdom with knowledge. And that's very dangerous. Um, So to start off, I want to read a quick quote from the book. It's from the start. It's page eight. And it's about this, this very idea about, about paradigms.
0: Now this is from his book, science and myth.
1: Yeah. Okay. So he says the old idea that the scientist first gathers facts and then constructs theories to explain these facts proves to be oversimplified behind every science there stands before a paradigm, a myth, one can say, which determines what is and what is not recognized as a fact. When Joseph Priestley in 1774 heated red oxide of mercury and collected a gas known today as oxygen, did he actually discover oxygen? So far as Priestley himself was concerned, he had found the phlogisticated air. (laughs) To discover oxygen, something more is needed besides a vial of gas, a theory, namely, in terms of which that gas can be interpreted or identified. And a bit further on, he says, just as in the words of Wittgenstein, thought never gets outside language, so too a science never gets outside its own paradigm. So where we think we are describing reality, we're really just acting within our paradigm, within our relative framework. And there are a lot of negative implications to that, and I think they're quickly unfolding nowadays. So that's where I'll start off. If you have any thoughts thus far, I'd love to, love well, to hear them. So
0: this this idea that he's talking about that um, when Priestley had this aha with this gas and he thought it was the uh, phlogisticated, <laughs> because back in those days, they thought that uh, ph- phlogiston was a thing. And this is a very good example of how science changes, right? They've yeah. discovered that phlogiston is not a thing, and and uh, um, but the idea that something else was needed, and that that something else didn't come along until later, and then then they could put a name on it and call it oxygen. When I was in school, they used to talk about how um, discoveries were made based on the climate of opportunity, because. And that was the phrase they used: the climate of opportunity, because sometimes a discovery will be made on one side of the planet and will be made on the other side of the planet at the exact same time, even though back in those days, there was no communication between the two sides of the planets. But because the other technologies that were necessary for that were already in place. And so then when the discovery came along, you could do something with it. This is why when da Vinci came up with all his ideas for an, a flying machine, he never got a flying machine because there were many things that weren't in place yet that needed to happen. That doesn't diminish his thought at all, but it does mean it's kind of the rest of the culture, the rest of the paradigm has to kind of catch up to it. So Mm -hmm. um, I also liked what you said when you said that uh, we have mistaken scientists to be the sages of our age. (laughs) Yeah. We have all these scientists that come on TV or on, on the internet and and people are asking them questions and waiting with bated breath for every answer that they give and oftentimes asking them to speak outside their realm of expertise, that's when it becomes dangerous. I mean, we do the same thing with musical stars or or movie stars. We ask them to tell us about science and <laughs> that's not their thing.
1: You know? No. But even, um, within, even within what they speak about, um, because if you learn a bit about just the philosophy of science, you realize that most of the science we do nowadays is inductive science, meaning that it's more of a prediction, let's say, that people make based on the data that they have. A deduction would be like absolute, absolutely true based on the information that you have. Uh, but in, induction is what we mostly do. And oftentimes, the inductions we make are even false. They're they're at at best they're approximations. Let's say, so even when you hear an expert saying on TV this and that, oftentimes they're proven wrong later on. And nowadays, if you want to have, give any credit to your statements, you're like scientific experiments have shown that this, and it's always an induction. It's like so ridiculous, and those are the arbiters of truth, which is a, it's just a really dangerous way of thinking. I well, think. and the,
0: the other problem about that is that so much of the research at least in four or five of the fields, so much of the research has been done, has not been replicable. So <clears throat> people have tried to go back in and do the same experiment again and get the same results and they have not. And yet we've based all sorts of decisions on those experiments, so. Yeah,
1: and there are so many flaws in experiments. Like if you've ever been part of a, of a study, you realize how many variables you can't control. And that shows the complexity of, of reality. It's infinitely complex. And to account for all variables is to think that you're God. And yeah. I'm pretty sure you're not. So,
0: and, and the other thing, Sabina Hassenfelder brings this up all the time, is that very often they'll have a study and they will just read the abstract and think, oh, this is what it says. And then they'll put that online and make a big deal out of it. But if you actually read the whole study, it's saying something quite different. Um. Absolutely. Yeah, so let's we'll keep going.
1: Well, so science, by its essence, is its limitation. Uh, that's how it works. That's why it works. And I think that it's very functional in its proper place. There's a reason we've we've gotten so so wealthy and we've made so much progress on so many levels in in a arguably very good way. But the only thing that really went wrong is we we put it up here. We put it at the place of God instead of at the place of of tools, um, to quote it simply. And scientific truth cannot be capital T truth, higher truth. And I think, have you watched um, Jordan Peterson's first talk with Sam Harris years back? May have. I'll try to, I try to uh, like, remind that's you. That's like what a was.
0: thousand hours of Jordan Peterson ago.
1: <laughs> yeah. It always sticks with me. And I remember exactly, this is a weird side, but I remember exactly where I was when I listened to podcasts for some reason. So I remember what train I was on when I listened to this. I got very frustrated. It was my first day of university. And I listened to this and basically they start talking with each other. And like, I don't know, 20 minutes in, they realize that they have a big um, difference of opinion in what truth is. So Sam Harris is basically like, he's quoting scientific truth as truth, you know? Um, so something pertaining to chemistry or something. And Peterson's like, well, that's not truth. And they get so hung up on this difference in understanding of what truth is because they they mistake, well, Sam mistakes um, like scientific truth for capital T truth, like a higher truth, an absolute truth. And that comes back to absolutizing the the relative that, that we've done here. Um, it's absolutely devastating. So I really appreciate Peterson for being such a science guy himself and to be able to step out of that. I think that's part of the reason uh, why he's so strong. It's because he's able to walk both paths. Whereas a lot of scientists, like Wolfgang Smith says, um, some physicists, they're good physicists or something like this, but almost all physicists are very bad philosophers. Like they don't. <laughs> And if you've ever listened to Neil deGrasse Tyson, you'll understand what I'm saying. It's just very hard for them to step outside of their frame, um, their paradigm, let's say, their myth. I
0: tried very hard them. not to listen to Neil deGrasse
1: Tyson. He was on Kurt's channel, and I just commented, I just commented, like, Kurt, I admire your patience. I don't have it. So I hope you uh, <laughs> uh, endured. Well,
0: so on this issue of truth and truth, um, I've thought about this a lot because I had a gentleman on my channel several times a few years ago who took Sam Harris's point of view about truth. And we probably put in four hours talking about this, so so I've had my own debates about it. But um, one of my physicist guests pointed out to me a lecture by Nima Arkani Hamed, who is a well-known particle physicist, I think, particle physicist. Um, He works in the arena of string theory, I think. But anyway, Nima Arkani Hamed did this lecture one time on the morality of fundamental physics. Or the fundamental morality of physics. I can never remember which way it is. I'll I'll put a link to it. It was amazing lecture because he was talking about how in order to do physics well, or in order to do any science well, you have to be rigorously um, honest with your approach and with your findings. And if you try to find a little wiggle room so that you can make yourself look better or so that you can establish your legacy or something like that, you will be found out because... Truth is truth, and uh, if you are a person of integrity, when you do your science, and then you find out later that what you did wasn't uh, wasn't good enough or didn't have the proper information, you can move on and try again in another approach. So you're always kind of climbing this mountain, but there's no way to ever get to the end of it because there's so much that needs to be known. But that the, the, um, the essence of the scientific approach does get you to discover truths along the way mm-hmm. to the ultimate truth. Now, even Hamed would say he he you know he wouldn't say, oh, there is an ultimate truth, but he did say that everything is pointing to something, which is kind of a radical statement for a, a materialist reductionist scientist to make, right? Yeah. anyway it's a wonderful lecture and one of the things that he points out is it's a very interesting thing about these truths that you discover because newton had a certain worldview of classical physics and taught us all these things about how the world operates which we still use to send you know um spaceships into outer space and when when they were using classical physics to get to the moon it worked <laughs> So so those truths are true. So it's like a mountain made of crystal. It's still there. Nothing has changed. That truth that was involved in that mountain is still there. Later on, Einstein comes along and his mountain might be a little bit taller in that you can look back and look down at classical physics and say, yes, but that's not all. And so then along comes Einstein with his higher mountain, Both those mountains are still there and will always be there no matter what else is found because there's truth embedded in both those mountains, but there will always be a higher truth to move towards. So I think people who believe in God don't need to have any fear of science as long as it's done with integrity, Mm -hmm. because all they're doing is discovering more and more about God's universe as they move along. And that's all good stuff, right? But it has to be done with integrity, and it can't be done with this idea that the scientists themselves are the sages.
1: Yeah, I think that by definition, science doesn't it doesn't threaten <laughs> threaten God because I think the the funny thing that that I always hear people say is like you can't scientifically prove God, you know. But the same holds true the other way around, and I think that's a more important point. It's like you can't disprove god because you're in your little frame like how would you ever ever go about doing that and it's the same we spoke off line about free will where people try to prove free will is not real with empiricism and with um <laughs> scientific data it's like don't you understand you have to go up a level of ontology a level of being before you can even talk about these subjects and to go a bit back to to Wolfgang's idea of the the three worlds, most scientists they operate even below what we call reality in terms of of everyday lived reality, the corporeal world. And so, to establish any truth above that is technically impossible. Like it's not even difficult or something. It's just impossible for them, for them to do that. So I kind of, I I, I haven't been threatened by any science to my faith because i mean it's so far below it it's it's Mm -hmm. kind of funny and i recently watched a video and i don't want to completely bash sam harris i think honestly sam he's looking for truth he really is like i don't think he's a he's a really a bad guy i've listened to him a lot i disagree with him a lot but i really do think he looks for truth but he had this comment in his video he's like show me where heaven is it i'm sure with the telescopes like it's like I, I thought that you were a bit above this, like, really, that that's that's how you're going to approach this. So it's kind of laughable at this point. Um, but it's an important point to make because a lot of people are still in this program. And I think that Tay- Tay- Tayo, sorry, I told him as well. I apologized for mis- mispronouncing his name. Tayo, when he spoke to you, he said that when he went to this event, Speaker's Corner, just this free speech platform. I think You saw that the, the public debate still, even in the religious spheres is still this like 2010s kind of materialist paradigm. And even in the religious spheres, and if you're operating within your religion and within materialism at the same time, then of course you're gonna feel threatened. I remember as a kid, hearing about these scientific discoveries and like, boom, gone, my religious <laughs> convictions. Um, so I think we need something much stronger to stand up to that and that's a that's a higher truth. and I think Wolfgang does a brilliant job of of showing that 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 it's possible to see that. Um,
0: well, getting back to Wolfgang, I was reading again a little bit this morning out of this book Ancient Wisdom and Modern Misconceptions and uh, he's talking about, he, he's still talking in the section I'm reading, he's still talking about a scientist named Eddington from the early 20th century, I think. Um, <clears throat> I just have to give the quote from Eddington, although that's not the important part. He says, I have referred also to an objective universe, which cannot be identified with the universe of which the knowledge of physics forms a description. Eddington was making the point that the the knowledge of the universe of which physics forms a description is a subjective knowledge because the physicists are describing the world through their experiments. So it's necessarily subjective. But Eddington is saying, I have referred also to an objective universe, which cannot be identified with that universe of which the um, above mentioned knowledge, the knowledge of physics forms a description. But what exactly does Eddington have to tell about that other world? What is the nature of that universe which stands behind the physical? You have the physical universe, which is the universe as described by the physicists. Mm -hmm. And then you have the universe that's behind that universe which I think is the corporeal universe, right? So Wolfgang's talking about that. He says, how do we know that universe? In fact, do we know it at all? Physics informs us how that world interacts with the strategies of the physicist. It tells us what answers nature gives to the physicist questions. But is that all we know? So... The world described by the physicists can only be the world that answers the questions that the physicists ask, right? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Well, what that made me think about is this Bible verse. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings to search it out. Mm. And I thought, who are the kings of today yeah. The kings of today are the physicists, right? Of course. They're the ones that want to rule and reign. So it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, which means there are things concealed from the physicists that they can't see, but it's the glory of the kings to search it out. So yeah. anyway.
1: It's, it's interesting. I think it completely removes your um, humility if you think that you're really, you're operating on reality and not the map. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I was watching uh Theory of Everything, Stephen Hawking movie mm-hmm. the other day. I think it's a beautiful movie. But you see the the young group of physicists at the start of the movie, like the the smart atheists, you know. Um, and you just see this—I don't know if it's arrogance. I think this arrogance, but this, this pride of having figured out reality is like, I'm figuring out a theory of reality, you know, I'm doing (laughs) the most important work. And like, you're drawing a map, like what do you think you're doing? You're drawing a map at best and it's going to be pretty good maybe, but it's, it's never going to be reality. You're never going to, going to actually map reality fully. Um, and so I, I love scientists when they realize that, that they're serving a higher thing, that they're serving truth capital T truth. Like you said, you're, you're serving something higher. And I've seen a lot of very humble scientists who act that way. But I think physicists, especially for, for this very reason that, that their philosophy is just so bad. They have this, uh, this tendency to to think they figured it out. And, well, I, um, I,
0: I think there's, a I think the temptation is because I was speaking with a, a physicist the other day and that'll publish next month, but <clears throat> When they do their work, quite often it's a matter of manipulating formulas and they're 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 doing the mathematical work with the formulas and then they get the mathematical answer. And this mathematical answer is perfect and it describes the universe perfectly. But it's math. (laughs) (laughs) You know? But but when you're doing the math and it works out, it's so exciting. I remember that feeling because I loved math when I was in school. Oh yeah, and when it works out, it's just like wow. That you know, and and I can imagine that a person could think that's the universe. It's the universe of numbers. Yeah, right.
1: It it's I I see. So I listen to um, this podcast every week, Andrew Huberman. A lot of people will be familiar.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah.
1: He's really good. Like, and he's a humble guy as well. And in him, I see this this almost childlike spirit of awe with nature. And science, and it's beautiful. And I listen every week. Like I've listened to all his episodes, and I love it. Like I, I really like educating myself on health and all these things. But I don't think that the people that are so excited, just like he is, realize that what they're so excited about is just like a little fraction of reality in, in total. <laughs> um, so I'm kind of happy for them because they got the right spirit and the right receptivity to to experience higher things. But it's it's funny that, and kind of beautiful that even in In that little bit like even in the in the cosmos that we experience uh even in the mundane you can find such curiosity and all so i really don't mean to bash scientists in this in this episode because i think a lot of them are really doing amazing amazing work but as long as they have this realization and they have the right um framework through which they they view what they're doing
0: well and isn't it wonderful that there's so many different kinds of people that each yeah. one gets excited about some little notch, right? Some little niche of, of reality. That means we find out more about everything. And then it takes all of those little bits to come together to kind of build some sort of a picture of the world so that we can all thrive together. Yeah. And and I think that's what it takes is uh the humility to know that we're all just doing our part. We can bring that together into community and see the bigger world.
1: Yeah. And if you do your if you play your part well. Like we were speaking about embodying what you do and doing embodied work, you will see deep truth within that. Often it's unspoken. I think that people who are more practical will be able to relate to this a bit better. Like for me, the deepest insights I've ever had were while doing something practical. It was it had nothing to do with words. It was just doing, you know, like I think the the Eastern religions are very good at this like embracing the process of what you're doing like when you're folding the laundry you don't have your mind elsewhere you're not folding it instrumentally just to get it done but you're doing it for 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 its own sake I think that's also what for calls the flow state just doing it something for its own sake that's why climbing is so you know it gets you into something so engaging flow you get this attunement to the world that that's when you touch upon it. Like that's when you get this Dasein, this, this being like,
0: Uh it's, it's amazing. Well, being a parent is really good for that too. I mean, if, if you, if you can bring yourself to engage with the process of parenting, with even changing a diaper, when you're changing a diaper, if you, if you focus on the deeper truths of the world, while you're changing a diaper, you're going to learn amazing things. And, uh, bringing yourself down to a child's level and moving along with them in their space, you're going to learn amazing things about the universe. And, and so um, I, I was 46 when I had my last daughter, she's 28 now. Yeah. She'll be 29, I guess. (laughs) Anyway, I was 46 years old. And so, and I was already very interested in the things of God and, so just observing the relationship between parent and child and thinking about God and us in that, in that paradigm, I learned so many things about God and so many things about myself in just observing me with my daughter. Um, it was a transformational time, really, when she was a baby and a little toddler. So I, I look forward to hearing from other people who are parents about your experience, and <laughs> be sure to let yourself get into a flow state with your kids because it's really good.
1: I think it's it can be very transformative for my dad. It definitely was. He he spoke about it. He start, he said that when he got a, his first child, he could first see, I think, the world through the eyes of of God. In a sense, it's like all oh, these are all all these kids all these people that have once been like children have had parents look at them in the same way, like this, this Mm -hmm. deep agapic love. And it's funny because Joe Rogan, the famous uh, podcaster, he says he had a similar experience where um, he realized that everyone around him has once been a baby, you know, Mm -hmm. and it it helps so much with like having um, humility and a kind of a kindness and a compassion for people. Mm Mm-hmm. Like they've all been these little fragile little things and the way they come out you know a baby it, it can't be alone right you have to take care of it and i think that, that that's why that's in a way why human beings have such a high capacity for for love compassion because our very foundation is unconditional love that's the only way you you can grow up with uh, a good psychological makeup, let's say, because if you, if you don't touch an infant, if you don't give it love, it's, it's pretty much doomed, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's, uh, yeah, it's beautiful.
0: It's good once in a while to look at old people too and say someday yeah. I be that.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's the imaginal thing. Like, and I think there, there's a beauty in also embracing your age. Cause I oftentimes nowadays when, when I work with my colleagues, for example, And my colleagues are usually a bit older. And then like one of them today was like, I'll be 30 in three years. It's so crazy. I'm not ready for this. And I'm like, it is what it is. Like just embrace it. It's okay. Like it's not such a threatening thing unless you want to be 20 forever. And I don't think you want that. Like maybe your childish version of yourself wants that. But I'm excited to to grow older, wiser, hopefully. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) If I play my cards right. Yeah. Anyway, um, let me. (laughs) Yeah. So I had another quote where I made a comment on it and I thought it was useful to pull up. Uh, It's a short quote. It says, and it's on page, let's see, 17. It says, What above all differentiates one man from another, again, from a cultural point of view, is the presiding myth that directs, motivates, and informs his life. This is very like maps of meaning language to me. Um, and I made a comment.
0: They're, they're, they're wrecks or they're, act, they're Sorry? acts? They're acts. Uh, what
2: differentiates direct. one from
0: another. Uh, oh, direct. It's the presiding
1: myth that directs, motivates, Oh, and that informs.
0: directs, motivates. Okay, okay.
1: Yeah.
0: I thought that was a noun. It's a verb. Oh, okay. uh,
1: yeah. So I made a comment on it and I said that our modern myths are either paradigms or scientific theories, both of which will inevitably be replaced and or falsified. And I think that this is why we need a stable religious myth that makes sense of, of reality itself without using this exact scientific language. So when people criticize the Bible for not being um, accurate, whatever that's supposed to mean, it's because the Bible doesn't use language in a scientific way, uh, is what gives it power. Because if you really think about what language does is language can describe and it's very limited in what, in what it is. And I had this really, I had this deep um, insight when I had my spiritual experience that I spoke about before. It's like the, the limitation of language, but at the same time language is the best we've got. So I think, the only way you can use language to refer to reality is if you get it to refer beyond itself. That's what you get in poetry. That's what you get in, in in music, and in, uh, in the Bible, in religious myths, in stories. And Martin Heidegger, toward the end of his life, he wouldn't even use this exact language anymore. He was only like writing in poetry, from what I understand, because he realized that it's kind of you know it's so limited to keep using language in this way it's such a it's such it's kind of like a waste sometimes but it's useful again on the lower level but if you really want to get up to higher truths you got to speak in ways where it's going to be hard to understand a bit more esoteric let's say
0: that was an insight that i had when when i was a mother of a toddler and as the mother of a toddler you're, you're trying to speak at the child's level and then the slightly above the child's level and help them grow up into it. But that means that you're using very simple language for a long period of time. And you don't have as much time to spend with friends and in deep conversation and so forth. And after a while, I felt like I had become inarticulate to the extreme. And that's when I started painting because painting that the The language of paint basically gave me a way to speak that that could be that could evoke that space, that mysterious space that that allows people to think more deeply, where the person viewing the painting could meet me at the same place where I painted it from, so that we could meet each other at a deeper level without using language.
1: yeah. It, it can really move you, I think, in ways and that mean, language music does never the same
0: will. thing. And yeah. uh, in poetry, I think there are all those. And, and I like your idea of having an unfalsifiable level of communication, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's the only way to do this, you know? And of Otherwise, course, that's, it's-
0: what, that's the best accusation that's always brought against.
1: Yeah, but that's the paradox.
0: That it's unfalsifiable.
1: <laughs> exactly. And the same with like, you cannot prove God. Well, good. Otherwise, it wouldn't be God. You would be talking about some some demiurge or something. Like, you're talking about um, a God that is within this world. Like, so <laughs> I, I well, wish the best. Anything
0: that you can prove with science, as you said before, at some point is going to be disproved because science exactly. is always falsifiable, right?
1: Yeah and then they'll say well why does there have to be something stable why can't the universe just be flux and it's like um a quote that i heard is the only thing that doesn't change is change itself and that's true in the cosmos but really think about it what if there was nothing absolute in this world Mm -hmm. really that means that there's no reality uh, sorry no morality no objective truth that means and and this is the biggest critique that that you can give an atheist if you're really an atheist, then act out what you believe, which is like act out, act it out, because it's, it's not pretty. Like you're going to behave like an absolute, just moron because you don't realize that the the very values and and morals you have, the very way you act is completely informed by the religious myth um, that you're standing on. And so now slowly, but surely, maybe suddenly now that we've stopped embracing the the myth we're gonna lose the values i think that that's that's i think what's coming and uh, what is already here i i think it's more so in the u.s than in my country i'm from the netherlands people are a bit more uh they're not as tribal they're not as polarized here and i think not, in the u.s not yet. <laughs> not yet but i feel like every time because I mean, of course, I don't have an accurate representation of the U.S., but one thing I do see is there are a lot more, let's say, cults. There are a lot more, like, political cults. There are a lot more religious tendencies with their things.
0: I think people here... Well, that's happened in the last, I would say, really happened in the last 20 years with, with the onset of the Internet has really yeah. driven that. But I would say over the last 40 years, it's certainly... <clears throat> I've, I mean that's during the time that i've been observing i've certainly seen the trajectory in the last 40 years um as though there is a force that's attempting to create that that shift yeah to push people apart i don't know if it's just an egregore or if it's just the media wanting to make money or you know i don't know but there's some sort of a force that's Creation split right
1: well there's spirits that, that underlie our behavior right yeah the spirits that underlie the direction and this may like cookie to some people but it, it's actually quite a simple idea is that you can think about what drives social media for example what drives ai a lot of it is our desires a lot of it is short-term things so social media what you'll see float up is like envy anger lust these are forces. These are, I think, you could conceptualize them as gods if you want to. Um, they're things that exist, even if you didn't exist and the other people didn't exist right now. There are things that are, are beyond you that they have some, they have some sort of objective reality of their own, and they're guiding us. Like our desires are guiding us all the time. And to have a conception of the Holy Spirit, the highest spirit, um, and a unifying God. That is the root of all being. Like, of course, that that's that's the asymptote. You know, that, that's where we want to go. Like, that's mm-hmm. that's the highest thing, the way we're going to go. And you have a lot of distractions along the way. Right now, we have a lot of distractions. So if people tell me that they don't believe in God, I'm pretty sure that they do believe in a lot of other gods. And they're clearly praising them in many different ways. They're slaves to many different addictions that have to do with anger, lust, and envy, and and all these things. And so, so that's kind of where I see this going. Um, and, you know, myth, science and myth is the name of the book. And myth starts to work when you start to believe it. So I started to see that the Christian myth started working on me when I gave myself intellectual permission to believe it. Um, and I really, like, I had, a, I had an insight moment. It's when I was able to call myself a Christian because I went to the, t- uh, to the New Testament with my dad. And as a child, I had all these trouble, I had a lot of trouble with like a lot of the, the things that happened in the story. And I would kind of like find some sort of semi-rational explanation for all of them that fitted my paradigm at the time. And then when I went through all the things, all the things that I had trouble with in the story, I finally bought it. You know? And that's when a myth starts working, when you actually believe it. So if you think that that you get the power of a myth just by like symbolically understanding it or met- metaphorically understanding it, however you want to say it, it doesn't work yet. And then when you start to believe it, then it starts to transform you. That's, I think, what the what the story of Christ does brilliantly. And you can be transformed by it on the, as Wolfgang Smith would say, on the esoteric and the exoteric level. So you can read it very surface level and believe it, or you can read it very esoterically like Jonathan Pazzo does, I think, brilliantly. So... But the same holds true for the scientific myth. You get transformed by the scientific myth. Um, so if, the, if there's theories that say that there's no free will, and if there's theories that um, speak about God being, being non-existent and all these things, you're going to be transformed. And it's often not very pretty. Um, that's why nihilism has been reigning so supreme. You have some thoughts?
0: I do. I have two thoughts. One of them has to do with envy and the other one has to do with free will. Let's do it. Okay. So um, I saw this quote the other day from St. Gregory of Nyssa, which I thought was really interesting. Envy is the passion which causes evil. The first entrance of sin. Envy banished us from paradise, having become a serpent to oppose Eve for envy it is not its own misfortune but another's good fortune that is unfortunate i want to unpack that a little with you <clears throat> let's start at the end for envy it is not its own misfortune but another's good fortune so the problem for envy isn't that that you know let's say i'm going to personify envy my problem is not that my life is in the toilet or that I don't have any money. I could even handle that, but what I can't handle is to see you having a good life and to see you have money, right? Yep. It's kind of like Margaret Thatcher used to say, they don't care if a, if a policy raises everybody's level so that everybody gets a little bit richer. If the rich are getting richer, they won't have that policy because Mm -hmm. they don't want the rich to get richer, even if it makes the poor get richer. So for envy, it is not its own misfortune, but another good fortune that is unfortunate. Now, at the beginning of the quote, he's saying envy is the passion which causes evil. So he's giving envy a causative power and saying that envy was the first entrance of sin but then he says envy banished us from paradise having become a serpent to oppose eve so he's personifying mm. the serpent as envy or personifying envy as the serpent which would indicate to me that envy has some kind of a contagion because if the serpent's if the serpent was envy and then eve responding even in, in in having conversation with the serpent got contaminated with envy right so yep. envy itself is a kind of a contagion yeah and and i think that's what we've seen happening more and more and that might be a result of marketing i don't know advertising the whole idea of in in the states we have this idea of keeping up with the joneses whatever the neighbor gets well i gotta have that too so i look just as good as they do this yeah. Whole um, envy thing is memetics to be very contagious. Yeah, the mimetic issue, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. And it's like, what is driving that? What is the underlying force of the mimetics? Um, that that's what's always worrisome because w- where is this going to end? You know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that like a lot of people often criticize capitalism for for seeing these trends, and it's like, oh, it's all because of capitalism. It's like well you're not quite there yet because it goes a couple layers deeper than that. Um, and
0: a, and and thousands of years before. That's what I mean like. Up,
1: yeah. It's funny because um you know everything collapsing in a way I'm not a doomsday person but everything collapsing more and more that you see now these trends. Peugeot says it's initially because of the Christians like if you go really back like there's no atheist uh Muslims or atheist uh hindus or something it's we we started this you know it's like we 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 settled our fate a long time ago um because a lot of the the christianity we have nowadays is grounded in this materialism and it's like once you open the door a little bit eventually it's going to blow open um so yeah and it goes even deeper than that of course but it's, it's interesting to see. And it, it kind of works cyclically if you think about it. Um, I think you're familiar with the quote, good times make, oh no, bad times make. Hard,
0: hard times make good men.
1: Uh, yeah. Hard times make uh, good or strong men. Strong men make good times. Good times make weak men. Weak men make bad times something like this
0: yes and then bad times make good men
1: yeah and so like long term i'm very optimistic and i think the same holds true for the the religion because for a long time kind of like a materialist way of looking at religion held up and now we're realizing that when you put uh, a biblical story next to sam harris sam harris is gonna like humiliate him um so then you have to get back to a stronger form of faith. And I really credit the Peugeot brothers for this. Like, they they blew so many people's paradigms open. Like, Peugeot is someone, or Jonathan Peugeot, I should say. I started listening to him. It's like you listen to him and it's like, I don't fully understand what you're saying, but I know you're onto something. Like, it's so very clear to me. He's bringing back this, this old church father way of, of understanding um, religion that is subject to, uh, that is resistant to to the science that we spoke about, you know? Mm-hmm. So that, that's been, uh, wow. like.
0: Well, an astonishing thing has happened at my church in the last six weeks. They started doing a series on the stories from Genesis. And it, the series is called The Rest of the Story. Mm-hmm. Every single one of the episodes has been taught through a framework that easily could have been a framework that Jonathan Peugeot taught about. Now I don't know where they're getting the ideas. Some of the um, the resources that they're pointing to in the Bible study that is associated with the message are from Tim Mackey and the Bible Project. But I do Not think that all oh, Bibleproject.com, it's also a podcast and a, and a YouTube channel. Yep. They've taken the Bible and they've taken different sections of the Bible and tried to animate, but but do it in this much more symbolic okay perspective now i don't know if tim Mackey was coming along with these ideas contemporaneously with jonathan or whether he was influenced by jonathan um and dallas willard was in this space long before i ever heard of jonathan Peugeot too so um there are people who've been kind of trying to hold things up a while right (laughs) i also don't yeah So it's, it's just great to see it filtering down into the church because up until this point, most of the messages in our church, I would say would have been not modernist in scope necessarily, but certainly not, not appreciative of these deeper layers, layers of symbolism. So it's really thrilling to be able to get this kind of teaching now.
1: Yeah. It's not holding up, you know, the materialism it's collapsing in on itself in, in every, in every way. Um, I think Wolfgang Smith's like he barges through <laughs> 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 like when I listen to him it's like oh shit oh, everything is opening up now um so that's uh, that's amazing yeah, because and because the- not,
0: he's not trying to make any um accommodation to the scientific perspective at all he just no. he just says it like it is he's not yeah. he's not shy he's not afraid to be who he is
1: and he's a, he's an old guy. You know, you listen to this guy <laughs> like, Oh, let me, let me like sit down for this. Let me, as he say, uh, he says, uh, approach him with folded hands. Cause he like, I have the same with my grandfather. I just let him speak. I'm like, this is like, a a vessel of wisdom right here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I love the way I love the way he speaks. I, I must admit, I rarely listen to him on one time speed because he listen, he speaks quite slowly. Yes. But even when you speed it up, it's just, wow. Uh, I was really like intoxicated first times I listened to him, and it's kind of embarrassing how many times I've listened to the the Kurt the Kurt episodes. So oh, I've got to really... go
0: back and listen to that. On what speed do you use? One and a half or
1: um, well, <laughs> one and a you, quarter? <laughs> it's often three or three and a half at this point. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I'll have to
0: try it on two and see what happens.
1: It's honestly I. I was really um, my paradigm shifted a bit about the speed listening thing because someone explained it to me like a muscle you can train. And he was basically like I, he said, I believe everyone can can read at least twice as fast or two times as fast as they're doing now and listen. Um, so if you just crank it up a little bit, like progressive overload if people are listening to to me and uh, are going to the gym, it really it really works like that. So especially Wolfgang Smith because he speaks quite slowly like three times speed is very doable after a while but when you first so, listen to so it we, when
0: you but when you first start you start a little bit slower than that yeah
1: definitely because he had so many concepts that I had to unpack before uh-huh. I could uh, yeah could really do that but especially now because I've listened to it so many times
0: that's a really interesting idea the progressive overload because when my when my daughter was young she took piano lessons from a really gifted um, Suzuki piano teacher. And she taught her that when you are practicing the piano, every new song, you should practice it first at the regular tempo and then slow it way down. And then speed it way up. Yeah. And then come back to normal and and go through this cycle. And that oh. that it actually trains your muscle memory in a different way because you're going at these different speeds, so it's training you at different levels, and it trains your memory of the music, your your auditory memory as well, at these different levels, so that it sticks better.
1: Oh wow! I'd never considered that. I must say, I I tried to teach myself the piano. I did it for like um, a year and a half, and I would like slow it down zero point twenty five. Mm-hmm. But I've rarely done like sped up. Yeah. I should I should try it. So she does yeah. normal, slow, sped up mm-hmm. in a cycle. Wow, that's interesting. I'll give it a go. Yeah. It's just going to sound weird, though.
0: Well, <laughs> you know? it's just for practice. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's just to train your fingers and to train your your physical memory. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. And then it takes over. I really like that. I don't know if anyone can relate to this when they play an instrument or when they play a sport even. When the unconscious mind takes over you know mm-hmm. like you stop thinking about what you're doing and just doing it mm-hmm. and uh sometimes when i haven't played piano in like three months i consciously get back into it and at some point my my second system just takes over um uh, but yeah let's uh, center back on the on the main man wolfgang mm-hmm. i think one thing that i'd like to speak about it's not in a book but i just realized that i hadn't spoken about it at all is his critique on carl jung I don't know if you've heard him speak about this at all.
0: Uh, Just a little bit when he was talking to um, Kurt, didn't he? He brought yeah, it up there.
1: He did. I think it's an important point to raise because Carl Jung is kind of, I feel it's kind of Peterson's highest influence. Mm-hmm. I've at times heard Peterson say that no one uh, that has criticized Jung really understands him, which I thought was a very dangerous thing to say because it basically puts Jung at like the highest position. Wolfgang is extremely critical of, of Carl Jung.
0: I just want to poke in here that I I've had several conversations with Gavin Ashenden. Um, and I'll link those because he also gave an excellent critique. He himself used to be a Jungian. Yep. And, and then he had a real shift in his thinking in his Christian walk and put away Jung. And he has a, Devastating critique of Jung in one of the episodes that I have, so I'll I'll put that up. Okay,
1: I'll, I'll I'd love to listen to that. Yeah. In his book, I think Tahardianism and the New Religion, he speaks about Jung or Cosmos and Transcendence. Actually, I'm not sure. Anyway, the the chapter is called the Deification of the Unconscious, which is the crux of the matter. So, Jung, if anyone's familiar with Jung, he often speaks about the unconscious. The side that that the side of our um of our consciousness that we're basically not aware of all the time. Mm-hmm. And in dream state you can you can access this. And he also speaks about the shadow side of the personality, for example. Mm-hmm. The shadow side is like this this repressed, unconscious side. And I've like I have a deep respect for Carl Jung. I read a lot of his books. I I was very influenced by him. I think he has a lot of incredible ideas but um he lived inside of this unconscious and he had a lot of practices actually that he was completely absorbed in and he said that they were the most impactful in his work just the unconscious practices so he would do something called active imagination if i remember it correctly it's kind of like asleep but not really asleep um it's like semi-dreaming and he would actually speak to the entities that he encountered in his uh In his travels, let's say, and he wrote that down, all those dialogues he wrote down in the Red Book. It's a really trippy read if anyone's interested. Um, But um, basically, I think if you take Wolfgang's um, idea of the three worlds, Jung was basically on the intermediary realm, you know, in a semi dream state. So there was no space, but there was time. And what Wolfgang critiques Jung on is that he kind of deifies this realm as... As almost the highest realm. So he puts he turns the unconscious into his God. and another thing that Jung does a lot of is he works in in these dichotomies, uh, these two sides of the same coin, where you have God, you conceptualize God as as the good side and the bad side of God. and you have Christ and Lucifer and he says that they're two sides of the same coin. So Wolfgang thinks that this is uh, this is absolutely detrimental because he thinks that Christ is absolutely good and God is God is good.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So those are some of the main critiques I would say. Um, anything else about Jung that I could think of right now? Are there any thoughts popping up into your mind?
0: Well, doesn't far? Jung also say that the, the world consciousness of, of all minds together yep. um, basically is God.
1: Yeah. That, that's the critique that, that yeah. uh, Wolfgang gives.
0: And and I've always felt really uncomfortable with that idea because that brings God down to the level of humanity rather yeah. than, than seeing the, the great distance, the yawning gap that there is between, even yep. if you took, because if what Jung says is true, then an AI could easily be God because yep. the AI would just absorb all the consciousness of all humanity all the knowledge and wisdom and all that stuff of humanity. And then all of a sudden could be basically God. Yeah. Now you, I, you've had an experience in another realm. So um, when you had your psychedelic or was it psychedelic or was it mushrooms? Oh, ayahuasca. It was
1: ayahuasca. Yeah. In
0: that experience, were there entities?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah.
0: Are, were they people that you would have, Trusted in conversation, or I mean, entities.
1: So I had two. <laughs> I
0: Am just, I asking I was, two No, 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 <laughs> no, no,
1: no. That's not it. I'm just, you know, when we speak together, I always imagine Sam Harris watching <laughs> over my little shoulder.
0: <laughs> I don't think hey, so.
1: <laughs> hey, Sam. No. Um. Okay. So, <laughs> people listening, hang on, hang on to your uh, to your seatbelts. <laughs> so, basically. <laughs> i had very clearly uh, two beings in my uh, in my experience and so i merged with them in a way that was extremely it was wordless i just felt myself merging i saw a visual and i merged with them and i was reborn into a into a different reality and it's going to sound really ridiculous but this was the realest experience i've ever had in my life it was realer than uh, than what i experience right now in, in many ways and they were like two parents for me the way that they guided me they were definitely like loving entities and that's um it's not the same experience for everyone so that's the important point to make here i think mm-hmm. i think i was extremely lucky because i approached uh my ayahuasca experience my psychedelic experience with a lot of humility and so i really prepared super well for it at this time i was meditating every day for over a year i was extremely disciplined in in my physical practice, um, you have to be celibate for it. Like a lot of things, you have to do, and a lot of people don't do it. And a lot of people do mushrooms in their basement, and I think that's when they encounter like the dangerous entities that, that I think you are you're looking for. Um, I think I was very fortunate to to be surrounded by the right people, but I think that there's a there's a big danger in um, in going through this uh, experience, and a lot of people they get stuck in the intermediary realm. I think a lot of these intermediary beings and that's also where demons are so so yeah there's a lot of danger to uh, to that and
0: well it's the realm of principalities and powers right yeah that the, the intermediary realm would be the realm of the principalities and powers Yep. that are talked about in the scripture
1: yeah <laughs> i think the mistake i made before i went into the experience was that i had a very clear-cut view of what those principalities were so you already put an image to them, right? That That's what I did. And then it was like, when I came out, I was very naive in my religious views. I was like, well, whatever that was, it wasn't Christian God, you know? <laughs> 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 but um, but yeah, just to go b- back a bit about Jung, um, I want to say, like, I don't, I'm not an expert on Jung. So I'm, I, I'm of course, not representing him well enough. I want to give credit where credit's due. I think he's a... Uh, Again, in many ways, an uh, incredible. he was an incredible thinker. But Wolfgang is basically critiquing critiquing him a lot as well because he kind of created his own false religion. And what Wolfgang says about him is that Jung has kind of gotten his own religion. You, you have all the Jungians nowadays and you have people that are like deifying his work and seeing that mm-hmm. the experience that he had, they hope that they can experience that as the highest experiences in their life. And he says it's a false religion because it's bottom up. It's created by one man and he says that where the the average person may fall prey to who was jung's predecessor again uh freud freud the average man may may fall prey to to freud but the more intellectual priest may fall prey to carl jung and basically what happens then is they they get stuck in the intermediary level and they don't go up to the eternal and they don't touch base with 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 god let's say so I think that would, would, that would be the main critique. And this idea of a bottom-up religion, I thought was a, was a very profound one because it's, it's at the same time a critique on new age type of spirituality, let's say. And the idea of creating a new religion, I'm seeing a movement like this as well. Like, let's just mm-hmm. pluck a bit from this and let's pluck a bit from that and we'll create this. It's mm-hmm. like, you can't do that because a proper religion is a binding back to God. and You can't bind back to God on one like with one stroke, goes back a a very long way.
0: Well, I was telling you, I had this conversation recently with uh, um, a part, a condensed matter physicist, and uh, I want to find you the quote from him in our conversation, because it just fits right in here, but it hasn't published yet, so... He said, his big thing in in condensed matter physics is the many-body problem. And he says the bottom-up approach is not sufficient to solve the many-body problem. (laughs) I thought that was kind of interesting because basically the bottom-up approach by itself is not sufficient to solve any problem, really. There has to be a top-down and a bottom-up. And uh, even if you just bring it down to the human level, my head alone is not sufficient to solve my problems. No. My problems have to also be worked on embodied in an embodied way, right? Yep. Health and everything else has to be both bottom up and top down. And, and then as you move up through all the layers, everything has to be bo- top down and then bottom up top down. Yep. The top down is first. And then the bottom up comes along because as we know, he that is at the top of the hierarchy is always coming down and helping the bottom to move up. Yep. So there's this, this cycle going on.
1: There's a, there has to be a, a yin to the yang. Let's say, you can't just have matter without the meaning um, to use Matthew Peugeot's uh, language.
0: And, think and in if, another there word. Is, if there is some sort of universal consciousness made out of all of the consciousnesses of all, of all human beings, that had its genesis from the top down, not yeah. not just from people arising out of particles and becoming, you know, evolved beings or whatever. Yeah, it you need form. At the top.
1: Yeah, exactly. You need the form to the to the potential. Mm-hmm. So the quantum potential they need something that pulls them up, and it, it brings me to the to the critique of evolution that that Wolfgang Smith has, um, is that basically what he says what evolutionary theory does it it's a it's an inversion of of creation, so it goes bottom up, not top down. That's his biggest critique. And alongside, he delivers some mathematical critiques where he says that the number of mutations necessary for evolution is way too high for for billions of years. Now, technically, like I don't understand this, so I'm gonna stay away from from drawing any conclusions about it. But philosophically, I think it's a sound argument that you cannot account for the evolution of, of beings just through the bottom-up experience, just through the particles. That doesn't make sense. There has to be something higher guiding it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's at least an incomplete theory, I would say.
0: Well, the mathematical stuff, there are plenty of videos on that, that people can look up. Um, <clears throat> David Berlinski has talked about that. Um, Stephen Meyer has talked about it. A number of mathematicians have gotten together and discussed, um, number of computer scientists have gotten together and discussed what are the probabilities for enough mutations to have occurred in order for enough kinds of, of evolution to occur. And which is partly why the the community in biology right now is moving away from strictly that sort of mutation level evolution and trying to come up with new paradigms to explain evolution. Yeah.
1: And it's important to keep moving, right? Uh, like we spoke about at the start, you start absolut- absolutizing the relative, you're in tyranny, basically. And I think he does speak about evolution, and the same with I think uh, Newtonian physics as this religious dogma that we've that we've basically adopted. So when you say evolution is false, um, you're immediately looked at as as like a conspiracy theorist. But evolution, like evolutionary theory, is just a theory again. Like we have to detach ourselves from, from relative paradigms, like relative um, maps. They're not, they're not absolute. So so of course, at some point, these things are going to be falsified, and that's really okay. And it doesn't mean that they're not useful. Like I think evolutionary theory has done a lot for, for us understanding, um, our ancestry and and like mating behavior and all these things. But <laughs> they evolution has become like this religious credo and that that's Wolfgang's like biggest critique on it. And he sees it even incorporated in the churches now and all these things. And it just comes back to this idea that you cannot adopt a scientific theory as a myth because it's just always going to be a false myth. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um,
0: Well, I mean, evolution, there are probably many scientific truths embedded in the evolutionary myth. But the way that it's taught in the schools, they teach the myth. They don't teach, they might teach a few of the little scientific discoveries that they've made, but then they wrap it all up inside this story. Yeah, and, it is a story. Um, the story has to be incomplete because we can't jump in a time machine and go back and watch it happen. No. So so at best it's, uh, it's a story that's used to tie together some scientific ideas and facts that have been discovered but yeah. that doesn't mean the story is true the way that the story is told
1: exactly and so i'm i'm interested in intelligent design i think it's a, it's an interesting movement but at the same time i think if you just add the the form to the potential in the evolutionary theory i'm sure that you could get a lot more out of it and i think i've heard you say before that that you can you can see god in both theories it, it's it's not mutually exclusive um
0: well, I I heard recently. Um, in fact, one of the books that they brought up in this series of messages at church is a is a book called um, Four Views, and it's something on Amazon. I'll I'll. Let's try again. For some reason, my phone is talking to me.
1: <laughs> it's saying something. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll I'll put a link to it on Amazon, but it's. The, there are four different um, perspectives on the creation, and each one is represented by uh, an essay by each person who represents that view. And then there are corresponding essays of the other three interrogating the one. And so they have a conversation. So, for example, the one who believes in uh, uh, theistic evolution will also be interrogated by the intelligent design person and by the young earth creationist and by the old earth creationist. And so each one of these views is put forward and then there's a a kind of a conversation amongst all the people who hold all the different views. So you can look at all the perspectives. You're not just hearing one story and being told you have to believe this. And it may be that none of the four stories have anything to do with truth, but the fact that they're having the conversation leaves spaces for you to Add in the the things that you yourself have learned and and find places where you can do more research to discover more things, rather than just accept whatever you're told. I think that's the biggest danger for this whole idea that the scientists are the sages of our age because when something comes along like COVID and there are so many um, disparate views on what's best, the government comes out and says, this is the science, follow this. And everybody's supposed to believe it exactly the way it's told. You start to wonder, um, nothing can be that cut and dried. There has to be more information. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't want to get into a big discussion about that. Oh, no. I, I don't have any particular opinions about it. I just noticed that this follow the science thing seemed yeah. like a very bad move.
1: It undermines the truth, really. It, uh, it undermines yeah. the dialogue as well. So regardless of, um, of of picking sides, it's it's like you cannot absolutize these things. And the idea that... Actually, it's a funny thing. Well, well, let's keep it up for now. Uh, the idea that, that you can just tell people what's truth as as a, as a mortal person, it's very, very dangerous to, to think that you have that kind of power. And it's like, it's, if it's for the good of the people, I'm just telling them what's true. Well, you don't know if it's true. And <laughs> you keep being proven false. So people lose faith as well. And there has been this development over the last, like you say, 40 years, where you see the way that political leaders speak to um, their people. And you see it progressively getting more and more like, They're speaking to children like it starts off like 40 years ago where you have presidents actually speaking to their people like they have some common sense Mm -hmm. you know like they 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 can work out the truth for themselves and now it's really just like well you do this and you do that and it's going to be okay you don't have to fear anything (laughs) because because we're going to take care of you and it's just (laughs) like you know you don't want to be treated that way even if you're limited in some way, like even if you're limited in understanding, you don't want to be t- spoken to like a sp- uh, like a stupid person.
0: Um, I remember when Ronald Reagan was <clears throat> running for president and maybe even while he was president, he would, people probably don't even know what a flip chart is, but there used to be these great big um, pads of paper, like yeah. four feet, three feet wide, something like that. And they'd hook it up onto a stand and then the guy would stand out there and he'd write on it and then he'd flip that page over and then he'd write on the next page. And so that you could write big, but you could keep changing it. So you wouldn't have to be erasing a blackboard or something. He'd get out there with a flip chart and he'd go through all of the economic realities. And he'd show if we do this, this is what's going to result. If we do that, this is going to be the result. And you know, this is the direction I think we should take. And he would walk through it with people. And it was very educational. Um, it made good use of, I've always felt like politicians should make use of the, the basically the pulpit that they get when they're in the public eye. They mm. should make use of that to educate people to what their point of view is. So people can actually make an informed decision, but that's not yeah. usually what happens. Usually they come out with a lot of statements which if you listen to them you can tell what they're saying is an out and out lie you're trying to get me to believe something that's just not true but you you yeah. you dress it up with fancy words like i'm supposed to i don't know i guess they do think we're all stupid
1: <laughs> yeah but you know i think it's also you're incentivized to, to act that way at this point yeah. because who's going to get elected it's not going to be the transparent guy who's going to cut budget to like long-term stable growth type of deal. But it's funny because people are seeing right through it. Like my generation is seeing right through it. It's incredible the the distrust people have in institutions and it's not necessarily a good thing, but it's kind of like, it's what has to happen right now. And I was recently describing to my girlfriend who the biggest podcaster is on earth. And it was funny because I never really spoke about him in this way, but Joe Rogan is of course. And... He's just a simple guy. He's like a working class type of guy. Um, and he just has conversations with people. And Peterson describes it brilliantly. He's like, this is just a guy who's looking for truth. And he's humble enough to, to be wrong about it. And guess who's who who's being followed right now? It's him. It's like just a guy who's, who's trying to figure things out. And that's what people love. Even if you're not that smart yourself as a leader, if you're humble enough to be um, changing your opinion and to... To listen to the truth, you're going to be absolutely loved. So I hope that, you know, hard times make make strong men and and women, and um, we're going to see more humility in in leadership. And I kind of.
0: You do realize that for the strong men to be made, that has to be hard times.
1: Yeah, but but I feel like. It
0: might be a lot harder times than what we're experiencing right now.
1: That's true. Um, You know, I always look at things. Bit economically, because of my Austrian economics um, interest, let's say. And, you know, I try to listen to these guys, what, what they have to say about it. Some are more negative than others. But in many ways, we are already doing very bad. If we're looking at my generation, the prospect of buying a house, like I spoke about with you in the episode mm-hmm. we recorded a couple months ago at this point like people are it's, it's almost impossible to, to plan a long-term future so I think we're already creating quite quite a strong generation maybe not so much in the welfare states but mm-hmm. if you go to uh, south of the border let's say for a lot of people into different continents you're seeing like really strong strong people I see it in my country like the immigrants that come in here how hard they're working it's uh it's incredible But I wanted to focus a bit back on Wolfgang Smith, because I think now that he has brought forth these theories, I think we're going to see more and more people realizing that this materialism is collapsing in on itself. And I think it has very positive implications for our worldview, which is also why I'm optimistic on the long term. I think more and more people are going to try to understand um, symbolism well, uh, reality well, they're going to try to understand the stories like ancient cosmology is going to be reintegrated. I think, um, I think we're seeing this big shift, Michelle speaks about it all the time. Like there's really a shift in consciousness happening. Like <laughs> I remember him always saying like a normal guy can understand what I'm talking about. That's completely new. Back in the day, Jonathan and, and Mathieu, they were like, they they were, they were insane to other people, you know? they hear them speak and now just normal people can kind of understand it so i'm not like the leaders of today i actually do think people have quite a bit of common sense and i've really noticed over the years um that people can understand things pretty well if it's not like keynesian economics theory uh (laughs) things are pretty understandable and yeah so i'm very optimistic actually but um
0: Well, when I said that, I didn't mean to be not optimistic. I mean, I'm, I tend to be a very optimistic person too. Good. Because I believe, I really believe that in the end, God has this thing, you know. But there are indications that there may be some very hard times before the really good times come again. I mean, that's just reality. Um, And it's but hard the, to know. Maybe we've all maybe we've already gone through. Maybe we're in that valley now. And maybe this is what the valley is going to look like. Or it could be a much bigger valley. I'm just saying, I think people need to be prepared for whatever comes. If yeah. really hard times come, that doesn't mean you throw up your hands and you say, Oh my goodness, I didn't know life was going to be this hard. <laughs> you know, life can be very hard. And even if it even if there aren't general hard times everywhere every person is going to go through some really hard times in their life and you have to be prepared for it. You have to, you have to know who, where you can put your trust when those hard times come and you have to personally have developed enough courage and, uh, and wisdom to be able to face the hard times. And Mm. it's just a reality. I, I think because we went through a lot of really good times for many decades, where people didn't have to face the challenges of life. Um, But there may be some misunderstanding about what life is all about, but life is really a place of challenges to help us to grow, to help prepare us for that future time when we are part of that intermediary realm. (laughs) No, Mm. (laughs) Um, we have a role to play we have a role to play even after this life is over and and yeah. we're in training for that. And that requires some hard times, you know?
1: Yeah. I believe that. And I think once you start to, to realize it on these higher ontological planes, you also realize that when things physically don't go well, that doesn't mean that your spirit is deprived. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't speak about this lightly, but the people that survived in the Auschwitz camps, they were often religious people for a reason because they realized that what's happening on this corporeal level does not have to corrupt my soul or my spirit mm-hmm. it really doesn't so you know like i speak about these things so i'm like um i'll always be fine and i'll always be fine but i'm also at the same time someone that completely stresses out when i don't have my protein for example <laughs> so like i don't i don't want to sound like some superior person like i'm when the supermarket collapses i'm done like it, it's over for me um but, but all that to say, there is so much hope even if this corporeal level is going worse. Um, there's a reason that people who have so much less often are so much happier. So you're saying like we've been going through good times and yeah. stuff, but like a lot of people that are financially successful are completely demoralized. So in many ways, I think ideally we could learn the lesson of both having, both, both being in the having mode and the being mode, like like mm-hmm. both excelling materially and spiritually at the same time. Like, I think that's the ultimate dream. Uh, I don't know if it's possible. Yeah, but I mean, but on really the other awesome. side,
0: I, I spent a month in Haiti one time <laughs> and I was just astonished at the general happiness and good nature yeah. and cheerfulness of these people who were in such desperate poverty. I can't describe to you the level... I. Because I was there during the time when the dictator was still in charge. Mm. And the poorest of the poor had nothing. They were scraping around in the garbage for grapefruit rinds for something to eat. And they were living in cardboard boxes. I don't mean just the homeless like here. I mean all the people. And they were so happy and cheerful and many of them would walk barefoot 10 miles over the mountains to get to church and when they would get to church they would sing with such joy yeah and and i'm looking at that and i'm thinking what have we done to ourselves in the west that we've lost this level of being in touch with what the world is about you know
1: and I think you regaining. Had, you it, had brought so. up
0: this issue earlier of we're, we're going to have to finish up pretty soon. But you had brought up this yeah. issue earlier of free will and what happens yeah. when, when, uh, when people give up on the idea of free will being a thing. Now, I wanted to play this little clip for you um, from this video on cubism. And um, let's see where is it. There we go. It's, and it's at the 3058, I believe,
2: so let's see if we can find him. We've saved determinism. Now everything makes sense. And, you know, already, long before quantum theory came along, um, there were a number of philosophers who argued that a deterministic universe, you might as well just say it's a universe in which nothing happens because everything now determines everything that's going to come later. So why even go through the motions of moving from now to later? They contain exactly the same thing. The present completely determines the future. Why bother going to the future? Just just live in the present. Within the last month, two different philosophers have thought that Cubism didn't have a stance on determinism and I've written to them um, pointing out, oh one of them was a PhD thesis from the University of Sydney and I can't remember who the other one was but I pointed out that in the very paper of mine that they cite I have this statement and this statement and this statement where basically I'm saying that uh, cubism strongly embraces the idea that the future is not determined by the past, that this is this phrase again, genuine novelty comes into the world. Genuine novelty is constantly seeping into the world. That the universe is, uh, every moment is a moment of creation in the universe. Or like John Wheeler or someone, a theologian asked John Wheeler, Professor Wheeler, would you say that the Big Bang is here? And Wheeler said, what a lovely phrase. Is the Big Bang here? I think that one day we'll have to say yes. So in other words, you think of the Big Bang as something in the remote past. It was the moment that the universe was created and the vision that Wheeler was trying to construct was that the universe is being made on the fly all the time. So maybe they're not um, uh, maybe they're not big bangs, but they're little bangs all the time. Little moments. I'll stop there, but
0: I will uh, I will put this one on. uh, I'll put this one in the notes. (laughs) Yeah. I just thought it was great this idea that genuine novelty is entering the world all the time. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Where have we heard that before? That sounds just like Wolfgang Smith with vertical causation.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I love the way that's, this man speaks, that's by cubism, the way.
0: cubism, which is one of the newest moves in quantum physics. It, cubism mm-hmm. stands for quantum Bayesianism. Mm-hmm. Christopher Fuchs is one of the one of the spokespeople for that. So,
1: I think he's a very eloquent speaker. I like the way he speaks. It's kind of like this, uh, it spikes some curiosity in you when you speak. I think uh, I'll listen to the talk. Yeah. I'll more. I think you're very yeah. well-versed in, in physical theories and stuff like that. Uh, I'm not at all. So I'm interested. <laughs> it's, I think it's more your past than mine to understand these, these the best, theories.
0: Yeah, well, I find it hard to understand Wolfgang without being able to understand the theories that he's talking uh, about. Yeah. So when he brings up something like that, I go back and I try to research it and understand what he's saying. Um, mm-hmm. and because... And, and in many ways, you read one of Wolfgang's books. If you go back and research these things, you can get quite an education out of it.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. Too bad it's not uh, credited.
0: <laughs> well, this has been fantastic. Um, thank you for all your hard work on, on uh, researching his books and thinking about his ideas. And it gives me great hope to know that your generation is starting to look at these ideas seriously and if you want, I can send you the the MP4s of our three episodes. So if you want to put them on your channel, you can do that as well.
1: Yeah, I can wait a bit after you upload yeah. it. Of course, it'll take yeah. a couple of weeks.
0: You and I are going to publish um, mid August. So mid August. Wait until September, sometime after Labor Day. Maybe you could publish. That
1: sounds good. I uh, I want to thank you. It's been uh, it's been an incredible opportunity. I think that um, you know you have no reason to talk to me. Uh, I reason like to talk to you. You're great
0: help to me. Goodness, <laughs> You're helping me. It's not the other way around.
1: My girlfriend was like, "Why? Why is anyone willing to talk to you? Like, what do you have to say?" <laughs> and like, Did yeah, you need I don't know. A new girlfriend. <laughs> no, no. She she's just humble like me. So, <laughs> we um, I'm very grateful. She's very grateful because these talks have made me a better person, better speaker. I've really enjoyed each and every one of them so much so uh i hope to see more of you in the future i'll definitely continue to watch on your channel i've really enjoyed a lot of the talks that you've had and thank you for bringing wolfgang into this again
0: well and about I, it I hope you i hope you let your own channel grow so that you can start having conversations like this with other people and uh, definitely yeah yeah i've been
1: i've been working hard on it these days i've been having a quite a bit of a some talks and it's been a lot of fun i'm really enjoying it i like it, so. some of
0: your little shorts your uh ASR oh yeah with the turtle eating the leaf was very good
1: <laughs> yeah i just upload some little videos sometimes just for my camera roll and it's uh-huh. weird because they get into the algorithm so it helps a bit with the growth but um darren thank maybe you maybe i Aaron. should
0: do that does that help yeah it helps because it I really mean, depends
1: on what you upload though
0: uh-huh you have to upload something people will watch right and it has to have yeah. a tricky title
1: the algorithm is like, what would you describe? Like the market, this enigmatic little thing. And you don't want to be a slave to the algorithm either, you know? Like you don't just want to make things just for the algorithm's sake. It's what a lot of YouTubers do. But, you know, you could always try to just clip out some things in your uh, videos and just upload them. And sometimes it does some good. Sometimes it doesn't do anything. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's worth a try. Because some people have like the time spans of a uh, Goldfish, especially my generation. So... <laughs> would be recommended
0: yeah your generation is pretty great i'm 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 excited about the future
1: very interesting yeah interesting bunch
0: thank you so much lucas have a great day
1: thank you karen have a nice summer as well i'll see you